Good morning, everybody. If you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. Well, students, I'm really excited. Uh, I was telling Rasha and Lauren earlier today about our sermon for today, and uh, I am thrilled to get the chance to talk to you about uh, the new creation, the hope of the church. Uh, We are wrapping up our series on the church. Uh, We've been calling it Rethinking the Church, and we have discussed over the last 12, 13 weeks or so a lot, a lot about um, the historic marks and the attributes of the church, the the main uh, biblical images of the church. We've talked about how it's the family of God, the, the body and bride of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit. We've learned about those historic marks that the church is one holy, Catholic, apostolic that there is one church, that it's been set apart by God, that it's the universal church to the ends of the earth, and it's apostolic, built on the teaching and authority of the apostles. We looked at the Reformation marks, that, it, that the church is marked by a right preaching of the word, the right administration of the ordinances, and the right practice of discipline. We've seen the importance of church membership, of knowing who has actually covenanted with this particular family of faith. We learned about the importance of church structure and why we believe at at Lakeview that the congregation before God is the final authority of the church. Not pastors, not a board of leaders, the the congregation. We've studied the role of pastors and deacons, these two offices of leadership given by God for the sake of the church. And then we moved from what the church is to what the church does. So we learned about worship and discipleship and missions, the tasks that God has given the church to God, to one another, and to the world. And we learned about baptism and the Lord's Supper, these two means of grace that are given by Jesus Christ. And finally, last week, we took a look at spiritual gifts, which is how the church thrives. So my hope and prayer is that this semester you've come away with a a good foundation, a good handle on the doctrine of the church, the what we call ecclesiology. We are the family of God. And every one of us, every one of you, matters as a member of the church. But today I want us to conclude our study by looking at the future of the church. We've, we've talked about historic marks, we've talked about current practices, but what's the future of the church? What is the end goal of the church? What will the fate of the people of God be? So I want us to look at Revelation 21 and 22 and be swept up in unbelievably good news because in the new creation the church will forever be God's people enjoying his love living without sin and worshiping him in the fullness of his presence so we're going to start in Revelation chapter 21 and if you're taking notes this morning I want to show you three big ideas three big points about what the church in the new creation will be like What kind of things the church and the new creation will enjoy? So if you're taking notes this morning, the first point for us today is this. The church will be the crown jewel of the new creation. The church will be the crown jewel of the new creation. Pick up with me in Revelation chapter 21, starting in verse 1. John writes and says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, 
prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Skip down to verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels. And on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with a rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth Christ of praise, the eleventh Jacinth, the twelfth Amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. Let's pray before we go any further. O oh God in heaven, we come before you this morning humbled that you would meet us where we are, that when we open the word of God, we hear you speak to us. And so, Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would open our eyes to see the good news that awaits us in the new heavens and the new earth, that we as the church, the body of Christ, will enjoy your presence forever, that we will worship you in spirit and truth without the, the threat or stain of sin, and for eternity, we will enjoy the overflow of the love and joy that you have for yourself as the body of Christ. We ask that you would help us to learn and to study and to know, to be transformed by your word so that we may live our lives with great expectation and great hope for what awaits us for eternity. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, now you may be a little confused because I'm reading Revelation 21 and we're describing a city and the walls and the gates and the foundations and the, the, the gates made of pearls and the walls and the length and the width and the height of this city. So what's going on? Why, why am I talking about this? Well, I believe that the church will be the crown jewel of the new creation, just like this point says, and I believe that we can find this out by understanding what John is meaning to tell us as he describes the holy city. You know, in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. He is the creator of all, and everything he created was good. Every, every day he would create, at the end of every day he would say it was good, it was good, it was good. But on the sixth day, he created mankind, male and female. He created them in his own image, and he said it was very good. Very good. 
Students, since the beginning, God's image bearers, humanity, you and me, have been the apple of his eye. We have been the object of his affection towards creation. More so than the mountains, more so than the animals on the plains or in the world or the fish in the sea or the birds in the air, we are the object of his love and his care. And now in Revelation 21, the end, we get a picture of the glorified image bearers in God's new creation. So we see in Revelation 21, verse 1, the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming out of heaven, adorned as a bride for her husband. This is a picture of the kingdom of God, and more specifically, the church. Because she is the bride of the Lamb. The church is the bride of Christ. We see this clearly in verse 3. He says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. So what he sees is a holy city. What he hears is the dwelling place of God is with man. That God and man will dwell together forever. This kind of sight and sound symbolism takes place throughout Revelation. So you don't have to turn there, but in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, after John and the angels and the elders are weeping because no one's able to break the seals to open the scroll, the angel says, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, and he's able to open the seals. So what the angel says to John is the lion of the tribe of Judah. But then in verse 6 it says, He turned and looked, and behold, he saw a lamb standing as though slain. So what he hears, lion of the tribe of Judah, is not exactly what he sees, the lamb. The same thing happens in Revelation chapter 7. John hears that there are 144,000 believers that make up the true Israel, that are sealed forever. But when he looks in verse 9 of chapter 7, what he sees is a great multitude around the throne worshiping God that no one can number. So as the church, we are the holy city. We are the people of God. We are the bride adorned for her husband. And as the church today, we get a glimpse of this already. Why? Because we we know that God's Spirit resides in each of us as His temple. We've learned this. We've learned that Peter tells us that we are all living stones that make up a spiritual house for the Lord. And one day, we will see with eternal fullness the love and joy that God has in us. Hold your place in Revelation and find with me Ephesians chapter 1. So 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, and Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 16. Paul has written in the last couple of verses this beautiful articulation of the gospel, this beautiful description of how God has loved us from before the foundations of the world, that He sent His Son to die, that, we've, that we receive His righteousness through His shed blood, this glorious grace that's been given to us in the gospel. And then look at verse 16. Ephesians 1.16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, that you is the church in Ephesus. You, the church, I don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know, this is it, what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches 
of His glorious inheritance in the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might. Students, what Ephesians 1 tells us is that the church, the bride of Christ, is God's inheritance. He's saying, I I pray, church in Ephesus, that that through the Lord Jesus, the Spirit of God would show you this knowledge. What are His power and love towards you and what is His glorious inheritance in the saints. God looks forward to expressing His love and joy towards you forever. This is something that God is excited about, that He looks forward to the day when you and Him will be together forever in the new creation. Jesus is awaiting this full union that awaits Him and His bride at the new creation. You are God's inheritance. Now flip back over to Revelation 21. Remember that in our study of Exodus in the spring, we learned that Scripture often denotes importance through space. What I mean is the more that something is described, the more detail that something is given, the more important it is. It's emphasized. So we read many, many chapters, remember in Exodus, about how the the tabernacle ought to be constructed and how the, the things within the tabernacle ought to be built. And then we read again the actual construction of those things. And we thought, why is it that almost half of this book is given to the description of the tabernacle and its construction? Well, it's because it's unbelievably important. And that space given emphasizes its importance. And that's exactly what John does here in Revelation 21, verses 9 through 21. So look again at verse 9. It says, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Remember, what he hears, wife of the Lamb. What he sees is a holy city built with radiant jewels, precious stones. The bride, the wife of the Lamb, look at verse 10 and 11. Carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain, showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming out of the mountain, out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel. We as the church will have the glory of God as our radiance. We will be adorned with the glory of God. It's what we mean when we say that one day you and I will not just be justified, declared uh, righteous in in account of our sin, not just sanctified as becoming more and more Christ-like, but we will be glorified. We will be like Him. More on that in a little bit. Student, don't miss this. Jesus will forever and ever be delighting in you. As a member of the bride of Christ, as a member of the church, you are now the object of God's eternal affection and joy. And we know that that affection and joy comes from the overflow of who God is. From eternity, the Father, Son, and Spirit have been delighting in and glorifying one another. That this unity in Trinity... The Father, Son, and Spirit, this three in one, one in three, out of the overflow of their joy and love, has an object of their overflowing affection, and it's you. It's you. He chose you. 
to be the object of his affection. He chose you to be the one in whom he delights. He chose you to be the one that he would shower mercy upon mercy, grace upon grace. He chose you to be the one that he would bless forever with himself. The church will be the crown jewel of the new creation. Nothing will compare to who the bride of Christ is. Well, it's not just that the church will be the crown jewel of the new creation. It's not just that we will be the object of God's affection. Number two, we see that the church will experience eternal life without sin. So if you're taking notes, that's the second point today. The church will experience eternal life without sin. Go back to Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. We're going to read a couple of verses again. Starting in verse 1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. The sea was no more. And we might think that's kind of a throwaway phrase, that that's something that doesn't really mean much to us, but all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is profitable. All Scripture is there on purpose. So what does it mean that in Revelation 21, the new heavens and the new earth, what does it mean that the sea was no more? I don't know about you, but I kind of like going to the beach. I kind of like seeing the ocean. It's, it's, it's tranquil. It's peaceful. It's, it's nice. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. I remember, just think about the first time you remember going to the ocean and seeing this vast expanse. It's something that captivates us. But in those days, the sea represented mystery and chaos and destruction. It represented fear. It's where monsters come from, whether it's the Leviathan in the book of Job or the actual beast that we find in Revelation. In other words, the sea is itself a symbol here of all that is not as it should be. All of this volatility, all of this mystery, all of this fear, all of this destruction. So in the new creation, the sea will be no more. There will be no more chaos, no more fear. No more destruction. All will be at rest. Look at verse 4. He, God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Student, we're, we're headed towards a day that we won't have to think about or experience the sting of death anymore. That we won't have to cry anymore. That there won't be any more pain. I know in the last 10 months, all of us in some way have experienced anguish and tension and sorrow and pain. Some of us, the pain of death. We've lost loved ones or friends. We've lost family members. There's a day coming where those things will be gone forever. Isn't this good news for us? As we think about living in a broken world, that this is not forever. That this is temporary. That the pain and suffering that we experience in this life has an expiration date. Look at verses 5-7. through He who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. 
I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Verses 5-7 through seven tell us that we can have total confidence that what we are reading will come to pass. God says, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. Write it down. It's as good as done. I have decreed it and it will come to pass. But verse 8 is a reminder that sinners who still live in their sin have no place in the wonders of the new creation. So student, hear me. If you are a member of a church on paper, but you are still living in unrepentant sin, what we are talking about with the new creation is not for you. Your membership card or your name on a roll is not sufficient to have the sins of the world removed from you and to be the object of God's affection. It is insufficient. So what does it require of you? It requires that you would repent of your sin. That you would turn from your wicked ways and fix your eyes on Jesus. That you would surrender your life to Him. That you would know without a doubt that He has made you whole by dying on the cross for your sins and offering eternal life and salvation instead of death, instead of this lake of fire. Instead of eternal life, the fate of those without Christ is the second death. Instead of eternal life without sin, it's eternal death away from God. But for the church, those who call Jesus Lord, those who live their lives in service to Him, those who have had their hearts changed by the Gospel, those who have the Spirit of God residing in them, what will life without sin be like? Look at verse 22. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. Only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Life without sin will be a life where there's no need for a temple. Because the Lord dwells perfectly with His people forever. There will be no need for sun or moon because the glory of light, or the glory of God will be like light to us, illuminating everything around us. The glory of the kings of nations will be brought into this place. All creation will enjoy peace. The biblical word is shalom. It isn't just no fighting. It isn't just no war. It's all as it should be. That the glory of all the kings of the nations might come together in this new city shows that this is a place where eternal life can spring forth with perfect peace. Nothing unclean will ever enter. Notice what that means. 
If nothing unclean can ever enter, if no more falsehood, nothing detestable can ever begin, ever be, be within, then that means that there will never be a threat of us losing this perfection. You know, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, Adam and Eve were created without sin. They were created able not to sin. They were created in, in right relationship with God, and God gave them commands. He gave them a positive command. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, have dominion. And he gave them a negative command. Do not eat from the fruit of this tree, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And that tree of the knowledge of good and evil was given as a reminder to Adam and Eve that they are not God. They're free, but they are not God. That the one who has all authority is over them. And yet what happened? The serpent came and said, hey, if you, if you eat the fruit of this tree, you'll be like God. You won't have any authority over you anymore because you'll know good from evil. You'll have that knowledge that you don't have now. So Adam and Eve were created able not to sin, but they were also created able to sin. They had the capacity to disobey God. They had the capacity to fall short. Students, in the new heavens and the new earth, you will be not able to sin. It will be an impossibility for you to fall to temptation. It will be an impossibility for you to have pride well up inside you. It will be an impossibility for you to have envy towards your neighbor because all sin will be removed. It's not just that the penalty of sin is removed. It's not just that the power of sin in your life has been removed. But sin itself will be gone. And the fact is, you and I really can't comprehend what life like that will be like. Because everything that we do is marred by sin. Every thought that we have is marred by sin. Every relationship that we have has brokenness due to sin. Everything that we do has a taint of sin within it. Students, the presence of God and the empowering Spirit roots out sin. Ultimately, the bride of Christ in the new heavens and new earth will enjoy the total removal of sin. But for now, in this life, remember and realize that God is with us. We have His Spirit. Life that has, been, that has defeated sin can happen even now as we walk in the Spirit, as we seek peace, as we become more and more like Jesus together. The presence of sin is not removed from us in this life. But as the body of Christ, as we surround ourselves with the Lord and His grace and His word, the power of sin will start to grow dim and more dim and more dim. And we can get a taste of what life will be like in the new heavens and new earth. When I see someone in my family of faith enjoy great success, and instead of being filled with envy or rage or disappointment in my own failures, I can look at them with joy and celebrate the goodness of God in their life. I can start to live like I will live in eternity. The church is the place where that can happen. It's the incubator for eternity. So not only will the church be the crown jewel of the new creation, and not only will the church experience eternal life without sin, but thirdly and finally, and I think perhaps most importantly, number three, the church will behold the face of God and worship Him forever. Find Revelation chapter 22. Revelation 22. 
Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding each fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Students, this text, Revelation 22, 1-5, is the fulfillment of the Garden of Eden. This text bookended from Genesis 1 and 2 all the way to Revelation 22 is the fulfillment of the Garden of Eden, the river that flows from God's throne to the tree of life that grows up on either side is now all that there is. There is no test anymore for obedience. All there is is life. And no longer does the tree of life have one fruit, but twelve, a different fruit each month, and its leaves bring healing for the nations. There is that shalom again. All creation will enjoy peace and healing. This is where we will be forever. And there in verse 4, we will see His face. What Moses longed to see in the Exodus, what Isaiah saw in a vision as a shadow, what Peter, James, and John saw for a moment on the Mount of Transfiguration, we will behold in its fullness together forever. And not only that, it isn't just that God will reveal the fullness of His presence to us. It isn't just that God will manifest the fullness of His presence before you. It's that through the removal of all sin and the glorification of our bodies, point two and point one, we will see Him exactly how He is. This is why John told us in his first letter in chapter 3, verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. Right now, if we were to see the fullness of God's presence, we have two things going against us. We have eyes that are fallen and minds that are fallen. We have a a body that is broken by sin. And so even the the most clear thing in front of us will be blurry to us. It's what Paul says that we see through a mirror dimly. We we see what's in front of us, but we, we really can't make out the detail. Because all of us are fallen and broken by sin. And not only that, but we exist in a world that is full of sinfulness and brokenness. So it's like looking through fog. So it's like I have blurry vision and I'm in foggy weather trying to see the glory of God. But in the new heavens and the new earth, the fog will be lifted and our eyes and minds will be healed. It's not as though God has changed at all. It's that he has made us able to see him. And when we see him, when we see God as he is, when our eyes have been healed and all that clouds our vision will be taken away, we will be left with the all-loving, all-holy, all-majestic, all-glorious face of God. And we will worship Him. The right response to God's revelation of Himself is always worship. But now we will worship Him fully, freely, perfectly. And how will we worship Him? 
What does it look like in the new heavens and the new earth to worship God? Of course, we will praise Him as Revelation depicts repeatedly. We will gather around His throne and sing songs of celebration and worship and praise to our King. But here in this text, it says, with the Lord as our light, verse 5, they will reign forever and ever. Worship in the new creation will be the church doing what they were made to do using their minds and bodies to righteously rule over the world in perfect relationship with one another and with their God. Students, we will fulfill what we were originally created to do, to live out our lives as image bearers of a holy God, as image bearers of a king who has all authority, as image bearers of one who knows all things, as image bearers who has always always existed in eternal relationship. That will be our fate forever. And students, we will never get bored. You'll never get bored. You'll never wonder, is there something better for me to do? You'll never exhaust His worthiness or His wonder. You will forever and ever find new and wonderful reasons to give God glory. You will live before the face of God full of joy forever. That's the hope of the church in the new creation. We will see his face and we will worship him. So today, we realize that he has not yet come. We realize and remember that he is coming soon. So today, let's reset our hopes. Let's reset our desires. Let's reset our our goals. Let's reset what the ultimate aim of our lives are together as the church, as individuals who make up this church, not in politics, not in sports teams or vaccines or nations or comforts or popularity or anything other than this. We will see his face and we will worship him. That God alone is the, the object that should take up all of our hope. We realize that we live our lives even now before the face of God, that He is with us, that He knows us, that He sees us, that He is near to us. So let's be the church together. Let's grow and serve and worship and share and love as we eagerly await the Lord's return. As we eagerly await the end of sin. As we eagerly await the vision of our Lord's face and the joy that he promises to give us forever. Let me pray for you. God in heaven, how we long for your appearing. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Bring an end to all of this strife. Bring an end to all of this pain. Bring an end to all of our suffering and our sorrow. Bring an end to death and pain. Bring an end to tears. Your word tells us it is done. It is sure. It is decreed. We can put our hope in your word that you will come again to make all things new. That you will come again to adorn us as your bride. That you will come again to remove the very presence of sin from your creation. That you will come again and show your face to glorified believers. So let all of these things and more Motivate us to live out our lives in this world as sinners who have been saved by grace through faith. 
as members of this body of believers we call the church. That we might worship in spirit and truth. We might evangelize and send the gospel to the ends of the earth, promising and, and, and inviting in the nations to come and be a part of the joy that awaits us in Christ. That we would disciple one another and grow in Christ's likeness. That we would become sanctified. Help us to, to listen rightly to, to sound doctrine and to sound preaching. To, to love and to honor the leaders that you have given to us. To, to rule as the congregation. To, to submit ourselves to, to biblical discipline that is good for us. To be one. To be holy. To be Catholic and universal. To be apostolic. God, help us to be the church for your glory, for our joy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.